Well, I heard an interesting story about a, uh, an old English village. In the English village, there is a chapel, as they call it. And the chapel has an arch on which was written, I don't know if this is the chapel or not, but it uh, looks something like this. But anyway, it was, here's what was written on the arch. It said, we preach Christ crucified. For years, godly men did preach in that building. They presented a crucified Savior as the only means of salvation. But as the generations of godly preachers passed on, a generation arose that considered the cross of Christ and the message of the the gospel, they considered it to be old, irrelevant. It's antiquated and even repulsive. And they began to preach salvation by Christ's example rather than by His blood. They did not see the necessity of Christ's sacrifice. And after a while, the ivy crept up the side of the arch and it covered the word crucified. And it said, we preach Christ. That was the only part that was visible. And then the church decided that its message Uh, need not even be confined to Christ in the Bible. And so the preachers began to give discourses on social issues and politics and philosophy and whatever else tickled their fancy. And the ivy on the arch continued to grow until it covered the third word. And so now it only read, we preach. That's a sad commentary on much of the state of the church these days. My friends, Christ crucified is your only hope. If Christ is not crucified, if He was never buried and rose again, we have no hope. And that is the theme that we see in our text today. So let's go to God's Word and see what He has for us to say here, what He wants to say to us today from Hebrews 10, verse 1. Hebrews 10, verse 1. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, He said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for Me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he said, or then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. 
And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us, for after saying, This is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. So I propose to you today, our text wants us to believe something. God wants you to believe something. He's told us here that that God wants you to believe that the animal sacrifices are ineffective. However, (laughs) praise God, Christ's sacrifice is effective. Now you need to understand something, because I don't think any of us are Hebrews. Under that old covenant that God gave to the Hebrews, Israel's priests, the priests, were busy all day long slaughtering animals and sacrificing animals. It has been estimated during Passover time when, when more animals than ever would, would have been slaughtered that during the Passover, it was about 300,000 lambs were slain in one week in Jerusalem. There was so much blood that they had to make a trough going from the temple in Jerusalem. The trough would run through the city and make its way out to the Kidron Valley. It flowed heavily with 300,000 lambs being slain in a week. And so, no matter how many sacrifices were made during that time, or even how often those sacrifices were made, those things were showing the ineffectiveness. They were ineffective to deal with the inner man. They were ineffective in dealing with our greatest problem being our sin. And so God gives us three reasons why animal sacrifices are ineffective. Three reasons why those animal sacrifices are ineffective. And I know that you're sitting there thinking, okay, I'm not a Hebrew and we don't have a temple where we're sacrificing animals. This isn't important to me. Well, it is important to you. (laughs) You're, You're not slaughtering animals to cover your sin. But we do we try to do other things to deal with the guilt and and, and to cover our sin, though. So just bear that in mind as you you think about, well, what other things am I tempted to to put my trust in? Well, just think about this. Here's some reasons why animal sacrifices are ineffective. Number one, they could not bring access to God. Animals can't bring access to God. Notice what verse 1 says. 
For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Notice the word never. Never. Old Testament saints wanted to be in the presence of God, but they really had no way of getting there. So whether, it, whether they had a tabernacle or a temple, they could not go into that tabernacle or that temple. They couldn't get there. They wanted to, but they couldn't. They, they were forbidden from going in there. Only the priests were allowed to go into the tabernacle and temple, and not even all of them could go in there. And then there was only... One, the high priest who was allowed into the most holy place, and that was only one time a year. So even that high priest could not take the people inside the veil. He was the only one allowed in there. All the old ceremonies and the sacrifices, notice what it says in verse 1, they could uh, never make perfect those who draw near. Or your, your new KJV says, make those who approach perfect in other words here's the point my friends those animal sacrifices could never save someone they could never save somebody the sacrifices as it says in verse one they're just shadows they could only reflect the image of the good things that were to come you'll see on the screen a picture of a of a man's shadow i hope you understand the, the, the imagery here. See, the law only pictured those things that were to come. God gave Israel this, this law, and, and, and it, was, it was a good thing, but it was ineffective. It was insufficient. And so the, the blessings we have today were only pictured in that old covenant. Praise God, we have a new covenant. Now that word shadow is an interesting word. It, it refers to a pale shadow it's not even a sharp distinct shadow like you see in the in the the picture here the law was form without the substance they portrayed something real but they were not real of course you you know your shadow if you you, you see your shadow and the sun shining on you you know the shadow is not you it, it has your outline and that's it it doesn't have any flesh and blood and brains and so forth right but it's interesting, the word form in your Bible there, the, the true form is indicating here something that is an exact replica. In fact, it's a very detailed replica. It's, the idea is it's, it's clear, sharp, beautiful photograph that is in full color. Not something that's hazy and it's just all you see is an outline. And some people read these passages like, like Hebrews and they say, well, okay, why did God go through all that trouble to, to, to establish the Old Covenant and He spent all those chapters in Exodus and Leviticus writing it all out in detail for us? Why did He do that? Well, number one, even as a shadow, it still had a purpose. What's it doing? It's reflecting the reality of which it was a shadow. It pointed to the salvation that was to come. 
Number two, the purpose was to remind God's people that the penalty of sin is death. There was a lot of animals slaughtered, a lot of animals died, showing us there is a penalty for sin. It was a visual reminder, the penalty of sin is death. And sometimes they even had to put their hand on the head of that animal, a live animal, as its throat was cut by a knife. And they would see the life pass from that animal, the very intimate and, and, and close thing. They're actually touching it as its life drains from its body. And number three, God gave his people the sacrifices as a covering for sin. It, it didn't ultimately deal with this sin, but it did cover. And so even a shadow is, of course, better than nothing. At least you can see it. And number two, there, there's a second reason why those animal sacrifices are ineffective. They could not remove sin. They could not remove sin. Because verse 2 says, Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. So what's going on here? Well, the animal sacrifices, all they did was just cover. Temporary covering. Never actually removed the sins. They, they, they never did what psalm 103 says where you know your sin is removed as far as the east is from the west <laughs> didn't do that uh, but yet, yet removal of sin is of course what you and i need it's our greatest problem and so if the old system could have removed sin then of course they wouldn't have kept doing all of these animal sacrifices it wouldn't have been necessary so those old sacrifices not only did not remove the sin but as it says they were a constant reminder that they couldn't ultimately remove their sin. Verse 3 says, well, it's in, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder. How often? It, well, at least every year. At least every year. And then that only lasted until the next sin. And therefore, it was a system that was very burdensome. It was a very disappointing system because you had to just keep doing this. Well, let me try to give you an illustration that might be helpful to you. A lot of people take medicine these days. So suppose uh, you get sick, which is never any fun. But anyway, you, you go to the doctor, and the doctor gives you a prescription to help you. And so then you, you, you take your prescription, you go off to the pharmacy, and then you, you, you get your medicine, and you start taking your medicine. Well, if it works, then every time you... You look at that bottle of medicine, then you're, you're happy. And you're reminded, hey, I'm cured. Well, maybe not if you look at that one. I know some people look at the, all these, you know, these red and orange, yellowy, syrups, syrupy stuff, and they're like, you know, it just gives them nightmares. But, uh, but, but anyway, some, you know, if, you, if you look at that and you say, well, it doesn't work, then, then you're just going to, you're going to look at that bottle, and it's what's it going to do? It's just going to remind you that it's ineffective and that you're still sick. It's disappointing, isn't it? Oh, it might give some relief or maybe some symptoms, but it doesn't cure your disease. 
And sometimes a bottle of medicine can be a a good reminder or a bad reminder. (laughs) God's given us a conscience. You'll notice in verse 2, it talks about our consciousness. There's a consciousness of sins. Well, what is this consciousness? It just means a that it's uh, mankind's innate awareness of, of wrong in his life and of his sense of guilt because of that sin. God's given you that conscience. Kind of like, uh, think you can think of it, a warning light on your, the dashboard of your vehicle. And Sometimes warning lights go off and they annoy us and sometimes we like to cut wires because we've had enough of that beeping or whatever it's doing, flashing, and sometimes Christians like to do that to their conscience. God's giving you that conscience, telling you, hey, you're sinning against me, God says. Well, don't cut the wires. Do something. We need to act on that. And consciousness is, is built into our makeup. It, it acts on our minds. Sometimes, like, pain will act on your body. Right? You don't want to ignore the pain in your body. God's given you that pain. It's telling you something. Right? Do something with that pain. (laughs) But it's not enjoyable, of course. But both serve a good purpose for us. And that's the point here that God's making. They serve a good purpose. The Old Testament believers were never freed from the presence and awareness of their guilt. It was always there. It's a wonderful blessing, by the way, for Christians today to, to know that There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans 8.1. What a blessed verse. And it's a wonderful thing then to be free from guilt and to recognize that my sin is forgiven. I can't imagine going another day in my life not knowing what has happened to my sin. Not knowing, am I forgiven? I mean, if I... If I have a heart attack now and I die, what's going to happen to my eternal state? My friend, if if you don't know what would happen to you right now, let's say you had a heart attack sitting there, or you get killed in your car on the way home, you need to know. God wants you to know. Jesus is able to deal with your sin. His sacrifice is sufficient. So Christians should be conscious of their sin. But his conscious no longer is this overburdensome thing that's just crushing you. So the forgiven sinner should not be insensitive to sin, of course. But at the same time, you should know that you're a forgiven sinner. And therefore, you are delivered from the fear of judgment. So, even though I, I probably sin every day, I, I can walk around knowing there is no condemnation for me. Because I am in Christ Jesus. Uh, I'm not in fear of going to the lake of fire and spending eternity there. Uh, My my great fear is the fear of Yahweh now. And so I'm concerned about breaking his heart. But number three, there's a third reason why the animal sacrifices are ineffective. They were only external. That's it. They're just external. They never got to the heart of the problem. What's the heart of the problem? They never removed the sin. And sin is often shown 
outwardly, but its cause is always internal. Those old sacrifices had no way of reaching inside a person. They had no way of changing the person. Because if you look at verse 4, it it should be pretty clear. It says, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Impossible. And if you turn over to chapter 9, verse 13... You get the same idea here. Chapter 9, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Notice there in that passage, it mentions the outward and the internal. Internal. See, it talks about the the sanctifying for the purifying of the flesh. That's the outward man. But when it cleanses your conscience, God comes into the inner man, and, and He can even deal with that. That's how powerful He is. And so there was no real relationship between a person's sin and an animal sacrifice. The relationship was only symbolic. That's it. It was impossible for the blood of an amoral animal to bring forgiveness for your moral offense against the holy God. Only Jesus Christ, who is God himself, he is God and man, could then come and satisfy God and then purify man the only one who could do that and and that's the point in verses 5 and 6 which by the way quotations from your Old Testament you'll see a lot of quotations from your Old Testament we we see Jesus quoting here from the Old Testament you can look at your cross references there coming from Psalms where Jesus quotes Psalms and he says sacrifices and offerings you have not desired but a body you have prepared for me in burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure My friends, it's essential to know that those external ceremonies had no internal requirement to make them acceptable to God. The the person who did not sacrifice out of an honest heart was not covered, not even externally. So you, you can go and offer an animal sacrifice, but if you did it with a wrong motive or whatever, then that meant nothing. The system came to, in fact, there were some who, who looked at that animal sacrifice system and, and it was kind of like magic for some of them. That's how they viewed some of it. You know, I'm just going to go through the motions, you know, doing the prescribed words and the actions and somehow there's going to be this, this automatic desired result. No, it didn't work that way. Even externally. For example, you, you've got verses in your Bible where, uh, for example, Samuel goes and talks to King Saul, and, and he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. So King Saul's doing, he, he, you know, he's, he's claiming to have the right motive, doing the right thing. Hey, I'm concerned about all these animal sacrifices. And God, through Samuel, says, no, obedience is better. God wants obedience. So what kind of sacrifices then are acceptable to God? 
Well, I want you to see what your Old Testament has to say. Under the Old Covenant, here's what it has to say. Even in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, look at this. Psalm 51, verse 17, says that the sacrifices of God are what? A broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That's under the Old Covenant. That's under this system where animals were sacrificed. Now here's a prophet of God in Isaiah chapter 1. God is speaking to Israel here. It's on the screen for you. Isaiah 1 verse 11 says, notice God speaking, What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says Yahweh? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Then God says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So what does God think about animal sacrifices? What does God think about us coming to Him and, and, and trying to deal with our sin, but our heart is far from Him? <laughs> He's not impressed, is He? He's not impressed. You say, well, I'm not making animal sacrifices like they are, like, like God's talking about there in Isaiah. Yeah, you're, you're, you're not. That's true. But what else are you doing? What are you putting your trust in other than Christ? Is it yourself? Is it your good works? Are you trying to earn your way to heaven? And, and do, you, do you come to worship God in, in, a, in a corporate setting like, like this, for example, but your heart is far from God? You're here just doing the motions, <laughs> just like Israel? Yeah, you come and you sing the songs, but there's that part of your heart that's, no, that's reserved for you. And you're not going to give God that part. God's not impressed with your sacrifices. You're saying, well, I'm sacrificing my time and my money and so forth. He's not impressed. He's not impressed. Obedience is better than sacrifice. That applies for us today as well. Well, those are some three reasons why the animal sacrifices were ineffective. And they were all pointing. Remember their shadow. They're pointing toward the real thing, the reality that was to come. Of course, that's referring to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ. So let me give you seven reasons from this text, seven reasons the text gives us why Christ's sacrifice is effective. Christ's mission and coming was to deal with our sin. Number one, 
Christ's sacrifice fulfills God's will. It fulfills God's will. Christ knew why He was coming. Because look at verse 7. He said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. By the way, that's a quote from the Old Testament. He, he, he knew He's fulfilling those Old Testament promises. So in the Old Testament, you have promises made. New Testament, promises kept. Notice it was written of Jesus in the scroll of the book. It was there in that Old Testament, the first part of your Bible, all along. Christ's sacrifice was effective because it was God's will all along. And so in the mind of God, before the world was ever created, He knew that old system of animal sacrifices would be ineffective. He knew it. From the beginning, He had planned that Jesus would come and Jesus would die. Jesus' supreme mission on earth was to do the Father's will. He said it several times. Over and over in the Gospels, Jesus speaks of His having come to do the Father's will. Remember when He prayed in the garden? That that, that shows you what's going on in His heart, right? He knew why He was there. If it was possible, He says, let this cup pass from Me. It must have been hard. Knowing you're going to the cross. You're going to bear the sin. But yet he said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but yours. He knew why he was here. So his was that perfect sacrifice because it was offered in perfect obedience to God. See, my friends, you need Jesus' life as well as his death. You understand that? See, Jesus had to come and live the perfect life for you. That's the only way He could be your substitute. See, you haven't lived the perfect life. You need someone who has lived the perfect life so that He can be the perfect sacrifice. He's done what you can't do. And so, he, therefore, He fulfills God's will. Number two, is the second reason why Christ's sacrifice is effective is it replaced that old system. It, it replaced that shadow, and now we've got the real thing. It's in full color. It's vivid. And so God took away that first, that that old sacrifice system, as it mentions in your Bible, for what reason? To make way for the second. To make way for the new covenant. The new sacrifice. And so His point here was to show the Jewish readers that that old covenant was not then, it never had been, never could have been satisfactory. It was never sufficient. It was not meant to be permanent. It was not meant to be truly effective. It was something that was only meant to be temporary and symbolic. And so God's focus was always on the second covenant, the new covenant, the superior covenant, the perfect covenant. And that second covenant has come in Jesus Christ. So we replace the old system. Because notice what verse 8 says. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. And then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. And he does away with that first, that, that first old system. He's done away with that in order to establish a new system, the new covenant. 
Praise God. Number three, the third reason why Christ's sacrifice is effective is it sanctifies the believer. It sanctifies the believer. Verse 10 talks about it. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And notice it is once for all. The idea of being sanctified, the big theological word, just means God makes you holy. That doesn't mean you're perfect like in, as in you're sinless. No, that's not what it means. It means you're, you're set apart. You're, you're distinguished. You're, you're different. You're, you're not like your unsaved being. You're not like the world. That old system, by the way, had no way of making a man holy. No way. So to be sanctified or made holy here basically means you're set apart. You're, you're different. You're not like everybody else. And so when the, the word is used in Scripture here of people, it always refers to being set apart by God for God. So you're set apart from your sin to God. So there's the negative aspect and the positive aspect. By the way, from that same Greek word group, we, we also get the word saint. Saint. Saint has nothing to do with fat little babies with wings sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Or whatever your view of saint is, is uh, well, there's all kinds of bad ideas on that. A saint is one who is holy, who is set apart. And so in biblical terms, a saint is a person whom God has set apart for himself. That makes you a saint. It's interesting there in verse 10, that Greek verb... We have been sanctified. That is a perfect participle, and it comes within, with, a, with a finite verb. I'm not a Greek expert, but those who, who are tell me that uh, this shows the strongest way the believers can... Conti- uh, it's, 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 it's the strongest way you could word this, basically, for the, the believers' continuing and permanent salvation. It talks about this continuing and permanent salvation, being in the perfect. The force of the statement is, is this, in my own words. It, something like this. You have been permanently made holy. So here's, here's what happens, my friends. On the cross, Christ sanctified believers. He set believers unto himself Forever they are holy and they are dear to himself and to God the Father. Now you need to understand, this, is, this might be a little deep for you, but there are three types of sanctification. Three types of sanctification. See, there is, there's this idea where you are positionally sanctified in Christ. At the moment of your salvation, your justification, you, are, you, you now have this new standing with God. But there's also a practical standing, and that's how we often think of sanctification. It's that that ongoing process in your life where you are being conformed to the image of Christ. So my friend, if, if you are in Christ, then you will be forever in Christ. Read Romans 8, verse 29 and 30. Romans 8, 29 and 30 talks about those, those who are called and those who are justified are glorified. Glorified is a present reality. Not ultimately yet, 
But in God's eyes, you're already glorified if you've been justified. And so this position here before the Father is not going to change throughout eternity. It's consistent. It's permanent. But our practical holiness, of course, is very changeable, is it not? Right? Uh, we, we sin. So therefore, we're not always set apart unto God. But this verse here is talking about our positional sanctification. It's talking about our positional holiness before God. And so we can praise God that that's not going to change because we are in Christ. Number four, fourth reason why Christ's sacrifice is effective is it removes sin. It, it, it gets right down to the roots and actually does what it's supposed to do. Because look what verse 11 says here. Verse 11 talks about every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But, but is a great word. It shows the contrast, that old system to Christ. Because look at verse 12. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Wow, what a, what a difference from the Israel's priest. They never got to sat down. In fact, they weren't even allowed furniture like chairs in the tabernacle and temple. Because they were never allowed to sit down, showing their work had to keep going and going and going. Oh, but Christ, He does His work and He gets to sit down. Because, what did He say on the cross? It is finished. He accomplished His mission. <laughs> Remove that sin. What a, a contrast. There's this continually standing of the old priest with the contrast of the sitting of the new priest, the great high priest. There's the repeated offerings they had to keep doing over and over with the contrast of the once-for-all offering. There's the ineffective sacrifices that just covered sin temporarily with this contrast of a, a very effective sacrifice that was once and it removed the sin. The Jewish priesthood, priesthood, my understanding is they had 24 orders, in each of which were hundreds of priests, which took, they, they took turns serving at the altar of the, the tabernacle and the temple. And the, the system didn't lack for priests. They had, they had enough priests. But what was lacking was they, were, is they, they, they lacked in effectiveness. All those priests together could not make an effective sacrifice for sin, but the good news is, my friend, Christ, just one priest, he comes and his sacrifice is effective. His work was perfectly and permanently effective. The fifth reason why Christ's sacrifice is effective is it destroyed his enemies. It destroyed his enemies. By the way, his enemies, the same enemies you have, Look at verse 13 says, talks about waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. So all the sacrifices of the Old Testament did nothing to get rid of Satan. He's hung around. They had absolutely no effect on Satan. Somebody going and slitting the throat of a lamb never actually got rid of Satan. It didn't get rid of the demons. 
And so the people who, who actually served Satan didn't, didn't deal with that either. But my friends, when Jesus died on the cross, he dealt a death blow to all of his enemies. Let me just give you a few verses to think about here. First of all, we see Christ conquered Satan. Hebrews 2.14 says, Through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. He conquered death and he conquered Satan. Number two, he triumphed over all the other fallen angels, all of those demons. Colossians 2.15 says, He, that's Jesus, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. Third, He disarmed and triumphed over all those rulers, all of the the authorities of all ages. Everyone who has rejected God has been conquered. And He is now only waiting, it says, until all of His enemies have been made a footstool. The idea there is they're under his feet. You know what a footstool is, right? You put your feet on your footstool. It's a, it's a very humble piece of furniture. <laughs> and, and sometimes kings would come up to their conquered foes. They would love to take the conquered king, put him on the ground, and, and the king who had conquered would love to put his foot right on the, the back of the neck of that king and push his face into the mud. That was his favorite thing to do when you conquered a foe. And that's the imagery here. Christ is going to come up and push Satan's face right into the mud. He's conquered them. And the Bible says in Philippians 2, one day everybody is going to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. They will all bow before King Jesus. But there's a sixth reason why Christ's sacrifice is effective. It provides eternal salvation. Wow, this is eternal salvation. This isn't temporary life. Uh, There's no even hint whatsoever about losing your salvation here because verse 14 talks about, it says, For by a single offering He has perfected... For how long? For all time those who are being sanctified all time so my friends the death of jesus what does it do it removes sin forever for those who actually belong to him we're totally secure in our savior totally secure and that's why i love that the term the eternal security of the believer and so we need cleansing when we fall into sin but we never need to fear God's judgment because of our sin do you see the difference this 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 is an in, insufficient illustration but let me let me illustrate it this way okay let let's suppose uh, my children sin against me i'm not going to name any names but let's say one of my children sins against me and, and it's really bad, and, and I'm just totally offended. I've been sinned against. Does my child cease to be my child? No. My children are still my children, even though they've offended me and sinned against me. 
but we do have a problem with our fellowship. There's a barrier. Because of that sin, now there's this barrier between me and my child, which requires confession of that sin, forsaking repentance of that sin for that barrier to come down. But they don't cease to be my child. That, that's a standing that can, cannot change. And that's the way it is for a believer. You have eternal salvation. Yes, of course you sin. None of us are perfect. Until you see Christ and you are made like Him, you will continue to sin. But my friends, you, you don't need to fear God's judgment. As far as Christ's sacrifice is concerned, we have already been sanctified and perfected. So it provides eternal salvation. And number seven, the seventh reason why Christ's sacrifice is effective is it fulfills the promise of a new covenant. See, the new covenant is, in one sense, it's not new. What I'm saying, in other words, is this new sacrifice had to be made, and it had to be effective because God's pro- He promised it would be. He made the promise in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant. New sacrifice was central to that new covenant, which, of course, God said would put His laws upon their hearts and upon their minds, and it would cause him to forget their sins and then their law and, and, and he would remember their lawless deeds no more. Therefore that new sacrifice was effective because of that. Because it had to accomplish these things that, by the way, was prophesied in Jeremiah 31. God said, I'm going to fulfill my promises. So look may I remind you of the new covenant which is in the old covenant. Jeremiah 31, verse 33, here's what God said. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. Here's what God says He's going to do. Look at the promise. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Wow, that's, that's what every Israelite wanted to hear. Because those animal sacrifices couldn't do that. And so though the new covenant was new, may I remind you, it's not actually new revelation. <laughs> it's quite old revelation, in fact. Hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even came. And so Jesus comes and he fulfills that old revelation. So now that it has arrived, this is something you and I should be welcoming. If you look at verse 18, what a beautiful verse, because it says, where there is forgiveness of these, these sins, there's no longer any offering for sin. <laughs> so we need to praise God, my friends. The work of Christ is done because the work of Christ was effective. The work of Christ was sufficient. So you know what that means? We don't need any more sacrifices. Forgiveness is already provided for those who trust in this one perfect sacrifice 
think about it. Why would anybody want to go back to those animal sacrifices? Well, apparently, you read your book of Hebrews, apparently there were Hebrews who were at least tempted to go back to the old system. So the Holy Spirit writes this book showing the believers who who were tempted, hey, that's foolish. Don't go back to that system. Look to Christ. Look to Christ. And the believers who who came out of that system, they said, okay, yeah, those were those were ineffective. I can see that. They're 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 strengthened by this good news that Christ's sacrifice is effective. And they were those sacrifices were never finished. They were never effective. They were to- temporary, ongoing. However, my friends, what good news? Christ's sacrifice is totally effective. Therefore, you know what that means? Christ is your only hope. And, and so this, this is coming now to the end of the doctrinal section of the book of Hebrews. And here's the great conclusion that we, we must draw from the teaching of Hebrews, my friends, is it must be the profession of our faith. Christ must be the great affection of our hearts. Don't be tempted to be drawn away into anything other than Christ because anything other than Christ is ineffective, insufficient. We must know Him. We must serve Him. We must grow in His likeness. He must become the great ambition of your life. May He be your all. He is worthy of all of our worship all of our praise. Do not forget His effective sacrifice, my friends. Never let go of His effective sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're, we're so thankful that Christ's sacrifice is effective. And may we not trust in ourselves or anything that we can do, our good works or anything whatsoever like that. Forgive us when we are tempted And we are drawn away by our own lust. And we think that we know somehow better than you. But may we see Christ for who He is. That He is the God-man who lived the perfect life in our place, died the perfect death, made the perfect sacrifice, was buried and rose again, and His work is complete because He is now seated at your right hand. His ministry continues on as our great high priest. And so, may our faith be put in Him and in Him alone. May we rejoice in this truth. May we find Christ to be the all-sufficient one. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.